So welcome to uh, the second to last GCF of the year, which means it's your third to last week of school. In case you guys weren't aware, you're almost done. So uh, keep it up. Um, we've been going through this year the Gospel of Mark. And what the Gospel of Mark is, it's a, an account of Jesus' life um, from this eyewitness uh, named Mark. And our theme has been, who is Jesus? You see it plastered on the screen behind me. Um, and that's Mark's goal. Through everything he's doing, through the exact words he's using, through the stories he te- he's telling, he wants us to know who Jesus is. And ultimately, that's the most important question you'll ever have to answer for yourself. And right now, each and every person in this room already has answered that question. You've either answered it rightly or you've a- answered it poorly. But Mark wants us to know it rightly. And tonight, Mark is going to show us who Jesus is, not again by telling us, not by having Jesus tell us who he is, but by showing us why Jesus came to earth. Now, this is important, showing us why he came to earth, because that communicates something. This past weekend, we had a women's conference with Elise Fitzpatrick. I know many of you um, were there. Woos were happening. Um, and, And what happened was, I got there, I was driving her around, the speaker around, and I dropped her off there, but we were going to arrange a car swap with my wife, and she was like late. And so I went in, I helped them set up tickets because our church was kind of dealing with the tickets, and it was, it was like a little awkward because it was a women's conference, and I was the only guy there, and I, but I was, I was like working, but then eventually I ran out of things to do, and my wife was still late, and like women by the hundreds started pouring into this building, and the awkwardness just compounded and grew and grew and grew. And so I get girls coming up, women coming up and talking to me from the church or that I would know. And their number one question is, why are you here? Because it was a women's conference. That's what it was advertised as. That was the nature of it. And I was not a woman. I did not belong there. There was a gender difference between us. There was an emphasis difference between us. Um, and, and it was really because of poor planning. And outside of, I'm waiting for a ride, I didn't have an answer as to why I was there. But even more so than me going to a women's conference, Jesus crossed a void when he came from heaven to earth. He came to a place where he didn't belong. He was in full perfect divinity in heaven and he took on flesh and it wasn't by accident. It wasn't by poor planning. It wasn't one day he woke up and decided to wing it. It was because and according to the good purpose and will of God. And what we're going to see tonight in Mark 14, verses 1 through 11, if you have your Bibles, if not, it'll be on the screen, is this. We're going to see that Jesus was willing to die because he saw the beauty in the cross-centered plan of God. Jesus was willing to die because he saw the beauty in the cross-centered plan of God. And this is really a big thing. This shapes a lot in a lot of ways. And we're going to get into these implications a little bit longer. But how we're going to see this, that Jesus was willing to die because he saw the beauty of the cross-centered plan of God, We're going to see it in three stories. And through that, Mark is being specific here because next week, we're going to get to the passion of Christ. We're going to get to his trial, his death, and his resurrection. And what Mark is doing, like any good writer is, is he's framing our understanding of Jesus' death. He's preparing us for Jesus' death. My grandpa had cancer for probably like two decades. Um, And we all knew he was going to die. I knew he was going to die from it. My family knew he was going to die from it. Um, And and it really, I didn't put much thought into it. I saw my dad wrestling with this. I saw other members of my family wrestling with it. And I knew it was coming, and I knew it would happen. It was a definite thing that Grandpa was going to die of cancer. But I remember the day 
I was sitting in my office when I got the phone call that Grandpa has 15 minutes left in the hospital. And I froze. I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know if I should go to the hospital. I didn't know if it was better to be on my own. And, and, and I, I was completely unprepared to process his death because I, through slothfulness, through being overly optimistic, through fear, through any sort of means, I didn't want to think about it deeply. And because of that, I didn't, I didn't respond well during it. I didn't respond rightly to it. And Mark is specifically writing these stories, and Jesus did what he did in these stories because he wants us to think rightly about the death of Christ. He wants us to think about it in the proper terms. Next week we see the story of the cross, but this week we see the meaning of the cross. So let's pray. Lord, we pray um, that you open our eyes tonight to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you impress on us the glory that comes through the, the will of God being unveiled in the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this campus, Lord. May we engage it um, with much zeal in these waning weeks where we're thinking about summer and we're thinking about finals, Lord. May we stay strong, not just in school, but we may strong, stay strong in our understanding and in our proclamation of the gospel. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. So like I said tonight, we're looking at three stories. Um, and we're going to see that Jesus was willing to die. Okay, I'm going to keep saying it. Jesus was willing to die because he saw the beauty of the cross-centered plan of God. And the first story we're going to see highlights this. It highlights the desires of the religious officials. This is kind of your first story. Um, now bear in mind, if anyone had book knowledge on Christ, it was these guys. It was the scribes, it was the chief priests, it was the people who should know who Jesus was. So we should be mindful of his view, right? If you guys go to uh, a chemistry lecture and it is a literary teacher or professor there, you should probably disregard anything she says. Why? Because she doesn't know chemistry. So if you're going to someone who interprets the Old Testament and should be aware of what the Old Testament says, you go to these guys, these Old Testament scribes and religious officials. But look at what their view was. Mark 14, 1 through 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him. That's Jesus. Arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So these guys had vast amounts of Old Testament knowledge. They had it memorized, the Old Testament. Can you imagine memorizing like the Pentateuch? Like everyone hates doing devotions in Leviticus. These guys had it memorized, like rote memorization of Leviticus. They had an intimate understanding of the Messianic promises of who this Christ would look like, of what this Christ would do. And yet they saw Jesus. And they didn't respond in worship. They responded in hatred and set forth a plan to kill him. Needless to say, they missed it. They missed it. And let me give you some background as to what's going on here, because you see a pause. The, the guys, they want to kill Jesus, but they want to pause, and they want to kill him stealthily, because the Passover feast is at hand, and they feared a response from the people. Now here's the deal. Here's, here's an Old Testament history lesson for you guys. Um, the annual Passover feast was celebrated every year by Jews in Jerusalem. And it was this huge 
religious pilgrimage. The, the natural population of Jerusalem was about 50,000 people, and for Passover, it would have a population of 250,000 people. That proportionally is the size of Missoula swelling to the size of Seattle in the matter of three weeks. Okay? That's a lot of Jews coming into town for this religious festival here. And so the, the Pharisees see this, and they know Jesus traveled. He traveled up north, he traveled down south, and so there are people coming to Jerusalem who are familiar with Jesus, and they're thinking rightly in their minds, it probably won't look good to execute a local celebrity when all of the locals are around. And they're fearful of that. But even bigger in terms of the, the population transfer of Passover, Passover had a theological meaning. It was a Jewish feast required by God because it symbolized the most important uh, Old Testament significant event, the Exodus from Egypt. If any of you have seen the new Christian Bale movie about the Exodus, it's not at all like that, okay? Um, and so, but this was huge. This was, the, the entire Old Testament pivots around this Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. And, and at one point, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They were oppressed, they were beaten, they were being killed, they were being abused, and God saw his people, he heard their cries, and out of his love for them and out of the praise for his name, he sought their freedom. And so what God did is he didn't go and find the strongest, buffest, centurion-looking Jewish man. He went and found this reject Jew wandering around in the desert named Moses, who had been ran out of Egypt by the Egyptians and then been ran out of Egypt by the Jews. No friend of Egypt. And so he picks this guy and he says, Moses, go and set these people free. And so Moses begrudgingly goes up to Pharaoh, and, he, and you guys have heard it, right? Vacation Bible School. Let my people go, right? You sing that song. And Pharaoh says, is there, I don't know how the song goes next. That's all I know. He says, no, you can't have all of my slave labor. You can't have all my people. So then God uses 10 plagues. He sends 10 plagues on the Egyptian empire to manifest his strength. Now think about this. If God is the God, the sovereign and powerful God over all creation, why did he need ten plagues? I mean, was he just exhausting every... Did he have an eleventh? Was he banking on that tenth, finally doing it, otherwise he's screwed? Why ten? Why not one? Because each and every plague was building to the tenth. Because in the tenth plague, God sought to manifest his glory. There is a greater purpose in the 10th plague. You see, the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. And God said that on this night, the angel of the Lord would pass through all of Egypt. And it would strike dead the firstborn son of every family. But because God is gracious, he made a way of salvation. If you desired to be saved, God said each family should go and they should find a spotless lamb and they should take it, kill it, and eat it. But more importantly, you take the blood of that lamb and you dip some hyssop, a, a paintbrush in it, and you paint it on your doorway. And that night, when the, the angel of the Lord came through Egypt, it would pass over, hence the name, pass over the house that has the blood of the lamb on the doorway. And they would be saved from death. And through this, the nation of Egypt was mourning, and Pharaoh was mourning, so they sent God's people out. And through the Passover, they were saved from the death and saved from slavery in Egypt. And so God, seeing this as the chief salvation of Israel, he required this. He prescribed it to be the ultimate feast, celebrating the ultimate deliverance, 
once a year. And there's all these laws that went into it. But the big thing is deliverance from slavery by the blood of the lamb. And see, so there's this, this tension going on in the, where we pick up the story in Mark. Because here we have this celebration of life, the celebration of deliverance, the celebration of what God has done to be practiced and put in place by the religious officials, but on the heart of the religious officials is only murderous thoughts towards Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. And then we see the scene change in verse 3. It says this, And while he, that was Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There are some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you could do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So there's some great irony in what we've read so far, verses 1 through 9. Because what we saw is we saw the religious officials, the one who should be rolling out the welcome mat for Jesus, and they want to kill him. And then we see the disciples, the most intimate friends of Jesus, who he handpicked to be his followers, and they just got rebuked by Jesus. And then we see this nameless, random woman come in who gives us the clearest picture of who Jesus is. You see, book knowledge, theological language, or even proximity to Christ or things which are around Christ is secondary to a right understanding of who Jesus really is. That's important for all of us. Knowledge and proximity are only relevant if you have a right view of Jesus. You could spend your days in church, you could spend days reading the Bible, but unless you have a clear view of who Jesus is, it doesn't mean anything. The disciples were confused. The religious officials were confused. But this nameless woman got it. It's really a beautiful story in the book of Mark. Because in John, we get the name of this woman. Her name's Mary, sister of Martha. But I love how Mark keeps her nameless. Because what Mark is saying here in his recitation of the story is this. This woman's identity wasn't in herself. Her identity was in her service to Christ. She doesn't need a name because she's a worshiper of Jesus. She doesn't need a name because she's defined not by the name the world gave her, but by the worship she's giving to Christ. And, and this is even more incredible when you think during this time, it was shameful for men to have common interaction with women. I just read an article in the Cayman today that made me, for those of you who are at Nom Nom Noons, um, it just made me mad because they said people who hold conservative gender roles just want women to be raped and oppressed. And there is no one in the history of the world, there has been no one more countercultural with promoting equality with women than Jesus Christ. There's equality, but there's difference. And Jesus held both of those in his hands. Jesus, for his day, was the most pro-woman you would ever get. Okay? Don't let the Kaiman fool you. Okay? 
I, w- I was a journalism major, and I was rolling on this campus, and I was just like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? Say, that's an aside. So here, women are not to do this. Even more so in like a male-only business meeting, which is what's happening right now. They would only come out if they were going to be serving food, and then they were to leave and not talk and not to be seen and not to be heard from. But not only does Jesus allow her to come in uninvited, but he allows her to disrupt this meeting and interrupt this dinner with this great gift. You see, the second story is a story of unrivaled offering. And so she comes in and she, she breaks this flask and this oil flows down. Jesus and the disciples are miffed at what's going on. They're just completely caught off guard. Maybe because it's a woman, maybe because it was unexpected. But we also see in the text it says they were indignant because of the perceived waste of this woman. But look at how Jesus responded. Verses 6 through 9. Listen carefully. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and you could do whatever you want, and, and whenever you want, you could do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So there's a lot going on in this text, but did you see that last verse? In my sermon prep, in, in looking at this and spending time here, I couldn't get over what Jesus just said in that last verse. He said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, this story will be told in memory of her. That's a shocking statement. Out of all the things that had been done around Jesus, this story was significant. So significant that he promised future proclamation wherever the gospel is proclaimed. And in fulfillment of that, three of the four gospels include this story. They have this story in it. So why, I was thinking on this, why is this story so important? This unnamed woman breaking oil on the head of Jesus. Let me give you four brief things we can learn from this story. The first is we see the inestimable work of Christ inestimable, unable to be estimated, unable to be calculated or counted. And Mary came in with this expensive ointment in an expensive jar, and she drained all of it on the head of Jesus. And disciples are shocked. I think I would be shocked at this too. I find the iWatch a frivolous waste of money. And the most expensive iWatch is what? Isn't it like 2400 or is it 24000 the gold one? Any iNerds in here? Anyway, It's many thousands of dollars for this. And I'm like, you are wasteful. Why do you need that on your wrist? But here, she comes with a jar and with oil. This is just the oil, not the jar. Alabaster is expensive too. An oil worth over 300 denarii. That's almost a year's wages then. And so today I just looked at what's the average individual income in the United States? $26,000. Can you imagine if someone walked in here right now with $26,000 and just lit it on fire in front of you guys? What would your response be? None of us would be like, well, that was probably for a good reason. Unless you're just a completely disillusioned college student. You will have to pay those loans back someday, just so you know, okay? Money's not free. But that's basically what just happened here. 
I mean, I mean, she took this oil, and from his head to his feet, it, her entire gift and this huge sum of money was absorbed in the person in a one-time offering to Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus says, not a drop of that oil was wasted. In fact, the worth of that oil didn't even scratch the surface of what Christ really deserved. You've often heard it said, what gift can you give the person who has everything? My dad always uses that, like cheesy things for his birthday. What gift can you give the man who already has everything? Um, and there's lots of things. If it's got a touch screen, my dad will take it. Um, but even more so here, what gift can you give the man that's worth everything? The worth of Jesus is unimaginable by us. He is the Son of God. God incarnate, the Prince of Priests, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the true ruler of all the world, whom Paul says, from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. There is nothing, you could take all of the money for the rest of your life and offer it to Christ, and there is nothing you can do that will be to the equivalence of Christ's true worth. You see, the best we can give Jesus is a trifle in the hand of the Almighty. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus graciously accepts it. Jesus graciously accepts it because he sees the affection that was being offered. That's the first thing, the inestimable worth of Christ. Secondly, we see the beauty of the cross. You see the second part of uh, verse 8 where it says, this um, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So she was anointing Jesus for his burial. She was preparing him for his death. And this again is, is ironic because Jesus has spent the majority of the Gospel of Mark telling these 12 guys around him, hey, the Son of Man is going to be crucified. We're going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. Hey, while I'm in Jerusalem, they're going to take me and they're going to hang me on a cross. And it's just like... Straight over their heads. They don't understand it. And yet this woman understood what Jesus was saying and saw it as a beautiful thing. You see, there was this Jewish custom back then and people would take a dead body and they would anoint it with oils and spices. We actually see them trying to do it later after Jesus is dead. And they did this for two reasons. One, uh, to keep the stink down. Bodies stink. Oils, spices, keep it from stinking up an entire countryside. And secondly, the Jews did this in order to prepare the body for the resurrection of the dead. You see, the Jews had this idea that, and it's a true idea, that one day all who are dead will be resurrected and judged. And so they prepare these bodies with oil in, terms, in, in some way preserving or anointing them for their next coming life. And they thought that this would happen to everybody at one time. Jesus would be resurrected at the exact same time Moses and Abraham would be resurrected. Jesus would be resurrected at the same time your great aunt Sally would be resurrected. But the beauty of this is this woman in giving her offering didn't realize the fullness of what was going on in the scope of history. You see, normally you anoint dead people. Jesus is very much not dead at this point. But she did it because of the urgency. But Jesus accepted it. Why? Because he knew he was born to die. Because he knew that's where his road led. 
And in addition to this, she anointed him in hopes of a resurrection. But what she didn't realize is that Jesus would have a different resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is referred to as the first fruit, the thing that precedes all other things. You see, he wouldn't be raised on the last day like the rest of us. He'd be raised again before all of us so that our resurrection might happen. In his resurrection, death would be defeated, sin would be destroyed so that we then might raise and have life because of what Jesus did. Look at how this plays out in Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see him, Jesus, who was for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So in the sovereignty of God, we are seeing Jesus prepared for both his death and his resurrection, and there is nothing more beautiful than the plan, in the plan of God than the cross of Christ. And it is a beautiful thing because Jesus isn't going to die like a man. He's going to die as a man, but he's going to die as God in the place of man. Third, we see a right response. Remember last week we saw the offering of the widows and she gave two small copper coins worth a mere 20 thousandth. Okay, that's a 20 with three zeros after it. 20 thousandth of the amount that Mary just gave. 20 thousandth, I can't even say it. <laughs> 20,000th of it, and yet Jesus accepted it because he judged not on the amount, but he judged on the capacity given, right? See this, this is important. Look back at uh, 12, verses 43 through 44. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing into the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Now look back at Mark 14, verse 8, the first part where it says this, she has done what she could. You see, you see two gifts of, on polar opposite ends of the spectrum. Yet Jesus sees past the amount to the affection. And this woman saw the coming death of Christ and she knew the only right response to the death of Christ was giving everything she was, her identity, her money, her hopes, and her worship, and pouring it out in total on the feet of Jesus. You see, for this woman, in one sense, she was very consciously anointing him, knowing he was going to die, but in another sense, it was a heartfelt act of worship and nothing more. This woman was driven to do this because the only right response to the cross of Jesus is worship. As you respond to this, to the gospel, what are the things that come to mind? And if there's something above worship, you're not responding to the gospel. You might be responding to culture. You might be responding to preferences. You might be responding to parents or to religion. But the only right response to the gospel is wholehearted worship. And you see how Mark mentions this jar. He mentions this jar and then he goes on to say that she broke it completely. And that's because, because of the worth of the oil. When things like this would be sold, they would be sealed in a jar. So it wouldn't have a lid. So that if you were moving and it, and, and it sloshed around, you wouldn't spill this invaluable oil all over your house. But Mark says that she broke it, meaning she poured out every last 
drop. She didn't get a Ziploc bag and hold some for herself. She didn't get some storage containers and drain it out and say, well, maybe I'll keep this for my college fund, or maybe I'll keep this for retirement, or maybe I'll keep this for my wedding day. She gave all of her hopes, all of her dreams, all of her plans completely over to Jesus Christ because he was worth it. No one compelled her to do this outside of the beauty of Christ. Lastly, we see the reaction of men. You see, the disciples were upset with this offering because it was wasteful. They saw this in verse 7 where it says, 300 denarii, this could feed the poor for a long time. And we can learn two things from this. First, we can learn this. Very important, okay? The chief end of man is not to serve the poor. The chief end of man is to worship Christ. The chief end of man is not to serve the poor. The chief end of man is to worship Christ. Jesus talked a lot. The Bible talked a lot. The Old Testament prophets talked a lot about serving the widows and loving your neighbors and helping the poor. But here, Jesus raises himself above that. He raises himself above the second commandment. And he says, the poor, you still have that. We still have the poor today. They sometimes wander around campus and we try to avoid them or they're on the footbridge as we're getting groceries and they're asking for food and we've got two huge bags of it. And we should because Jesus has served us in our poverty. We should serve the poor. We should love the poor. We should be concerned about social justice. You men in here, you should be concerned about how rapes are handled. You should be concerned about human trafficking. You should be concerned of issues of inequality and rights. But ultimately, all of those are secondary to the worship of Jesus Christ. You see, it's often easy to relegate the Christian faith to doing to saying, Jesus has saved me, now I need to make the world a better place. I need to dig wells, I need to fight malaria, I need to feed the poor. And you should do that. And through the history of charity, no one has done more global good than religious organizations. They're a huge force in the charity world. And in, in some cases, the first force. But ultimately, your life, your mission, and your ministry needs to be drenched in the worship of Jesus. We must learn to hold the worship of Jesus and the operation of that in the world together, but we need to learn that one of those is worth far more. You will be defined by your worship, not by your work. Your worship, when well done, produces work, but worship is of chief importance. That's one response of men. Secondly, we can learn this. For those who see the true worth of Christ, you will be seen as foolish in this world. You'll be seen as foolish because when you see, have a right view of what Christ accomplished in your life, you'll live your life in a different way. It will naturally impact your lives and the people will sometimes find you foolish, even people inside the church. These disciples knew Jesus and yet they saw the worship of this woman as pure folly. But look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 13 and 14. For if we are beside ourselves, another translation says, for if we are out of our minds, it is for, for God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died and therefore all has died. So what does the gospel do to you? By believing the gospel, here's your promise, take it to the bank, you'll be out of your mind. 
If you are out of your mind, if you are thinking beside yourself, countercultural to this world, that is the work of God. But here's the thing. What Paul just said is if you are out of your mind in the gospel, you're of most use to the world around you. To be right mind, out of your right mind in the gospel is to be right-minded towards men. Because you're compelled not by the commands of culture, but by the compassion of Jesus. And what this world will be transformed by is not clean water, is not social justice. What this world will be transformed by is the worship and praise of Jesus. And the things we do to that end will be seen as foolish. There's great worth in the offering of the woman. And that story speaks to the whole goodness of the gospel. This last scene, briefly, Mark 14, 10 through 11 says this. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, Mark's saying this intimacy, he wasn't an outsider, he was an insider, and yet he went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when the chief priests heard it, they were glad. What irony. They were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. So remember, again, what we're looking for in this text is that Jesus was willing to die because he saw the beauty of the cross-centered plan of God. Now for those of you who are following along in this text, how is this the plan of God? The people who are acting here are the religious officials developing in their heart hatred, seeking to stealthily kill Jesus. And then we see Judas on his own leaving the side of Christ to betray him for what other books tell us is 30 pieces of silver. Whose plan is this that Jesus would die? You see, it looks like God's plan is being derailed here, isn't it? Is the cross just God's response to a horrible turn of events where he had this, this picture that Jesus would come and people would love him and they'd accept his teachings and they'd build this utopia here on earth? But then things got angry and people got testy and God's like, I can use this. I can use this. Is Christianity just a, a, a mythically optimistic recitation of the murder of a cultic figure? Is that what it is? Because that's what people will say. Yeah, you can make up that story. What else are you going to make up? Your leader died. There has to be something better than that. But did you see what was happening here? Okay, Verses 1 and 2. The religious officials are conspiring in their hearts by stealth, unknown to anyone, let alone Christ himself, that they want to murder him. But look at verse 3. It begins with while. And while. You see, while the religious officials were plotting the plan to kill Christ, Jesus was in Bethany already preparing himself to die. You got see throughout the whole story of the book of Mark, Jesus was one step ahead of the religious officials. And even in his own death, he was already ahead of them. Why? Because Jesus knew all along it was the will of God to drive him to the cross. 
You see, the, the Judas and the scribes are actively seeking. They're straining to find opportunities to take Jesus by force. But look at what Jesus said four chapters earlier in the book of Mark openly to people. In Mark 10, 45, he said this, For even the Son of Man came not to serve but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, they aren't going to take Jesus' life from him. Jesus is going to give his life to them. And John, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to lay down his life. Jesus isn't going to the cross kicking and screaming as the crumpling of God's plan. He's going to the cross with the weight of the world on his shoulders, knowing this is exactly what God wanted. You see, here's the thing. The disciples were upset because the worth of the oil could have served the poor for countless days. But the oil wasn't the unrivaled offering. See, 300 denarii would serve some of the poor, but those 30 pieces of silver, they'll save the world. That's a greater offering. The money that matters in this text is not Mary's money. It's Judas's money. Ephesians 1 says that the will of God since before the foundations of the world was to bring to himself sons and daughters through the person of Jesus Christ. Before the first man was made, before the first, first tree grew, God saw you through Jesus Christ. He saw you through the cross. Before the cross was the desire of sinful men, it was preordained for the glory of God. Again, I love this. Look at the timestamp at the beginning of this chapter. No, Mark wastes no words. What does he say? It was now two days before the Passover. Why is this important? Sure, it's telling us the full of the story, but here's the thing. In Jesus's or in God's prescribed rules about the Passover, on one day, four days before the Passover, you were to get your Passover lamb. You were to find your lamb and keep it for four days, and on the eve of the fourth day, you were to slaughter that lamb. You see, at this very time, the rest of Israel had already secured their Passover lamb, but in the midst of this story, God was securing his Passover lamb. Through the blood of this lamb, God would pass over and save those who were covered from slavery and death. That's why God made a big deal about the Passover. That's the plan of God. So I have one question for you tonight. How do you think of the cross? When you think of the cross, what do, you, do you see it as a historical event? History tells us a man named Jesus of Nazareth was murdered on a cross and he had many followers. And you could say that's true. But outside of that, there's minimal impact in space-time history. There was no, no theological or spiritual thing. It was just this teacher who died, the people who proposed good morals and grounded beliefs seek to follow him. That's a lacking view. Do you see it as an important event? For the majority of my life, I saw this as a wonderfully important event. I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up in church. We sing about the cross. We talk about the cross. We get tattoos of the cross. We get cross Bibles, crosses everywhere. It's this icon of the Christian faith. And we say something important happened on that cross where I've been reconciled to God and or forgiven, where Jesus died so that I can be friends with God. Jesus died so that I can be loved by God. And all of those are wonderfully true. But if that's the only view of the cross, you have not been prepared for it the way Mark wants you to be prepared for it. 
You see, the cross is not simply a historical event, and it's not simply an important event. The cross is the event, the defining event of all of human history, the event which shapes everything before and after. And this event is not only shapes how God views you, but this event shapes how you view you. This event shapes how you view your purpose. This event shapes how you view the world. This is the event which compels you to lay down your life to the one who died on that cross. This is the defining event of your existence, which is it impressed on your minds when you wake up in the morning? Is it established in your hands as you work throughout the day? Is it inscribed on your heart as you live and as you love? You see, the cross is Christ's cross, but he took it because it was God's beautiful plan to draw all men to himself. Does that shape your life? So I think this is the third week in a row I've mentioned ISIS, and this is a little different, but ISIS as they're persecuting Christians and, and other sects of Islam in the Middle East, they've coined a derogatory term which they use for Christians when they're marching them to their murder. Their videos they show, they show these men walking out to where they're going to be decapitated and they say, behold the people of the cross. What a glorious title to die under. Defined not by the world, defined not by the manner of your death, but defined by the cross of Christ. But even more so, what a beautiful title to live under. Lord, we thank you that you were prepared for burial not because of a tragic turn of events but because when you sat in your room at Bethany days before you were murdered you had the glory of God in mind and his plan to save all men because of the affection he has towards his people. And God, I pray that in being prepared for the for the gospel that's going to pre be preached next week where we see the death, burial, and resurrection and glory as it transforms us by just looking at the text that we will be prepared not just to hear a story of how we were saved but to hear a story of how we lived. To hear the influence of the cross and how it shapes our life for the better. How we serve not as an auxiliary thing to the cross but we serve because Jesus has freed us to do it and we love because Jesus has does it has done it. And we look at the cross and we see the beauty. We look at the cross and we see the glory. And we look at the cross and we see Jesus taking our life and making it his. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to impress that on us because we can't take it on our own. But just like the Pharisees and Judas couldn't take the life of Jesus, but Jesus gave it, you will give us the ability to see the cross rightly. Praise in your name. Amen.